0: The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Steadfast Church or to partner with us on mission, visit steadfastavl.org. Good morning, family. It's great to see you guys. Uh, This is where you go, and it's great to see you too. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, If you're new around here, my name is Brian. I have the privilege of uh, serving this church as a lead pastor, and I'll be preaching this morning. Uh, If you are new and want to be known, there's a little Connect card in the seat back there, or the pew back, I guess. Uh, You can fill that out at any point during the gathering. pop it in those two black boxes on your way out. But if you just want to be anonymous, that's okay too. We, as Ryan said, we are a family. We're a dysfunctional family, but we're a family. So you'll fit right in. And, um, and we hope that you feel that sense of belonging. And so if that takes a few weeks to just be here and observe and kind of watch, uh, that's fine. We want you to feel at home, feel welcome, feel like you belong. Um, and then as you're ready and want to get involved, you can let us know. Um... First, first thing out of the gate, this place looks great, doesn't it? Wow. Uh, yeah, before you clap, let me tell you who did it, and then you can clap for them. How about that? I want to give a special thanks to uh, Doug Van Wert. He was on a huge ladder hanging these things, and Doug doesn't need to be on a huge ladder, but he did for you. Uh, Matt and Bree Metcalf. Yep. Uh, Morgan Scarborough, and uh, particularly Brandon and Lindsay. Uh, Jarrett, would you guys just raise your hand? You don't have to stand up. Just raise your hands up. Let's thank them. <clears throat> yeah, this looks amazing inside and, and out in the lobby as well. I heard Brandon did that whole tree by himself. So well done, sir, well done. And he loves me calling him out from the stage even, even better. So the last time I called him out, it was for forgetting something. So <laughs> we did better this time. They're in my group. I love them. They are my family. So uh, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, open it up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Today, as is obvious, we're beginning the season of Advent. If you don't know much about Advent, it is a season in the church life that's been practiced since at least the 4th century. So we've got, you know, 1,700-plus years Uh, under our belts here as the Christian church. And, And really the word advent just means arrival or coming. And so this is a season where we are commemorating the first advent, the first arrival of Jesus. Then he came to live the life we couldn't, die the death we deserve and rise again from the grave so that we could be forgiven of sin and reconciled to God. And we also look forward with anticipation to the second advent of Christ, when he will come again and deal fully and finally with sin and darkness, and he will make all things new for his glory and for our good. So, so we're preparing ourselves, not just for Christmas, right, but for the coming of the Christ. And that's why it's such an important season, looking back with gratitude for all that Jesus has done, but eagerly looking forward to our joy being complete when the savior returns again and that begs the question right like why did jesus even come we've mentioned a few reasons here already this morning Um, if you were to kind of go out on the street and ask people like why did jesus come you might get a number of different answers and the bible gives a number i think at least 31 different reasons why Jesus came into the world. You might think of some of them, you know, John three sixteen, for example, or um, Isaiah 61, that great promise that Jesus reads from the, in the temple in Luke 4, when he says, the spirit is, of the Lord is upon me, and he's anointed me to pro- proclaim good news to the poor, and uh, recovery of sight to the blind, and the release of captives, right? Like, that's why Jesus came. But there, there are seven times, I think, as I was reading back through the gospels, uh, at least seven times where Jesus says specifically and directly and personally, I have come for this reason. There are other times he says, the son of man has come and we might look at some of those, but, but um, I wanted to, for the Advent season, just focus in on reasons that Jesus himself gave us for why he came and my hope in this, we're gonna look at one from each gospel account through this season, uh, my hope is, is for a greater appreciation of our Savior and our King, that we have a, a more robust understanding of why Jesus came, and it'll allow us to celebrate more fervently uh, this season of Advent together. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5 uh, this morning. It's page 760, if you want to use one of the Bibles that's in the pew rack there. Uh, I'm going to read for us just four verses, and, uh, and then we'll take it in two movements. So pretty easy today. Still going to take me a long time, I'm sure, because that's just how I am. But you guys keep coming back, so it's your fault. Um, Join me, if you will, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, some of your translations might say a jot and a tittle, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, what a joy to be together with my brothers and sisters this morning and to kick off the season of Advent. Lord, there's nothing... Magical about this season. Um, but I pray that there is something more than sentimentality in this season. As we with with open hearts seek to, to truly understand why the God of the universe would send the Christ into the world. What it means for us. How we benefit from it. And what praise and honor and glory is due to Christ because he came. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help me this morning as I um, seek to explain these few verses of the scripture that you would help me to rightly divide this word that it might benefit and edify the people of God. I pray that even now, that if there's anyone in this room who has not surrendered their life to your lordship, if there's anyone who does not know you as their savior, that today would be the day of salvation. And as we explain this text, that there would be a growing conviction of the need for repentance and faith. Lord, will you do what only you can do in our hearts for your glory and for our good. Give us listening ears, obedient hearts, and a willing spirit. Thank you for what you're going to do and I pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. 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 So you may know uh, if you've read the Bible, and I I think most of you have, um, these words we just read, verses 17 to 20, um, fall in Jesus' most famous body of teaching, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I had the privilege of visiting Israel back in May, as many of you know, and uh, I got to go to what they call the, the Mount of Beatitudes, And uh, I had thrown a picture in, but I don't know. Do you have that picture? I forgot to ask you. There we go. So you can see the Sea of Galilee there in the background. I'm pretty sure that awning wasn't there in the first century, but uh, you can go to the next one as well yeah so and I'm pretty sure the landscaping wasn't quite like that back then but uh this is the Mount of Beatitudes there's now a big Catholic church there because the Catholics basically own all the religious sites in Jerusalem and Israel um and there's it's this big ornate cathedral and they sell wine at the like little gift shop and stuff and I'm like walking in going blessed are the poor you know and here's this big thing but anyway um sorry uh but kind of not um Anyway, we, we were there and, uh, with a group, and, and it was amazing just to be on the physical site where Jesus came up onto that mount overlooking uh, the Sea of Galilee and taught his disciples. And so there he is, he, he, he ascends this hillside and he begins teaching. Now his disciples are his primary audience, but there are others in view, particularly the religious folks, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, among others. And, and he will say things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He goes on then to say um, that uh, that we are, that, that his, his disciples are the salt of the earth, the, the light of the world, that a, a city on a hill should not be hidden. And then he begins to issue these words, we find in verses 17 to 20. But before he's gonna go on and, and teach further, um, uh, but he says these words as a preface. And he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. If you're a note taker you can write this down. I want you to see in these first couple of verses the fulfillment that Jesus provides. The fulfillment that Jesus provides. He says, "Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets." Now, uh, or the prophets. The Old Testament as we as we look at it now has kind of three divisions to it, okay? There there are there's the law, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, there's the prophets, which include the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the minor prophets. Those are the 12 little ones in the back that you usually don't read, uh, but you should because they're gold. Okay. But they're minor because they're smaller books. And then there are the writings. The writings include history, uh, poetry, wisdom, literature, Psalms, Proverbs, all that kind of thing. Now in the first century, just as uh, as Jesus came on the scene, this kind of threefold understanding of the, of the Old Testament had not really developed. But they did call the whole of the Old Testament, sometimes the law and the prophets. Sometimes they would just call it the law and it was shorthand for the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, you'll see this if you read the gospels. Jesus will quote from the Psalms, but he says, your law says. But see, the book of Psalms is not in the law, it's in the writings, but Jesus knew that. Okay, Paul in some of his letters, will also quote, quote from the Psalms and say, as the law says. Okay, so law or law and prophets was just shorthand for the entirety of the Old Testament. And that's important because as we read this, Jesus says, hey, don't think that I came here to set aside the, the, the scriptures. Don't think I came here to ignore or to do away with our holy scriptures in the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures. That's not why I came okay, why would Jesus have to say that? Why would he have to say, hey, don't don't think that I came to, to set aside the Bible? Well, Jesus is a good teacher, and good teachers know that they must anticipate misunderstandings. They must anticipate false assumptions about their teaching. And as an emerging rabbi, People were curious about what Jesus' relationship was to their scriptures, to the sacred writings. It would be much like many of you, when you heard of Steadfast Church, before you ever came, you went on our website to find out what we believe. If you hear of a new church plant in an area, you might go and research the sermons or the doctrine to understand what do they believe, because you're curious, before I invest myself in visiting, before I go sit under this teaching, I want to know what they stand for. It was similar as Jesus was coming up. And he's about to go on. If you know Matthew 5, you can even see this in the subheadings. Um, He's about to go on and he's going to do these six things that have been, been known as the antitheses where he says, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. He does that six times following this. And Jesus knows that if he doesn't pause right here, and preface and say, "Hey, hey! Before I say these things, don't think I've come to do away with the law. Don't think I've come to do away with the scriptures. I didn't come to do away with it." He knows that if he doesn't set that preface, there could be misunderstanding, and people are going to get the wrong idea about him. Does that make sense? So, as Jesus goes on, and we're going to look at a couple of these in a little while. Um, As he starts to explain, you've heard it said, but I say, he's gonna primarily focus on the moral implications of the law. So there were ceremonial laws, there were civil laws, and there were moral laws. And Jesus is gonna drill down on the moral laws, but, but he wants them to know, hey, I didn't come to do away with this. In fact, look at verse 18 again. He says, do not think I've come to do away with, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, Not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Again, when he says law there, he's meaning the entirety of the Old Testament. An iota is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's called a yod. The smallest Greek letter, I believe, is called the iota. Uh, The the word jot here simply means uh, it's it's a little character. So I know the graphic designers will get this in the room. Most of you won't. Uh, you, You know like the Times New Roman font? That's like the standard one when you type stuff, okay? Uh, how do you know the difference between like uh, a lowercase l and a capital I? You get those little marks, right? And, and in some fonts, it's like a little squiggle and that's what makes the difference. That's a jot, that's a tittle, right? That's the little, the little, iny bitty mark. So Jesus says, hey listen, uh, until all is fulfilled, Not one little dot of an I, not one little cross of a T, not one little curve on a letter is going to pass away until everything is accomplished. This is one of the strongest statements about the scriptures that you can even give. And we see that Jesus didn't even, he didn't just believe in the authority of the scriptures. He lived by them. It was the basis of his entire existence. Jesus himself said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus upheld the word of God. He honored the scriptures. He loved the scriptures. He, he spent all, like if you cut Jesus, the Bible would ooze out of him. That's how much he was full. And we just read it, like the word was with God and the word was God. Like Jesus is the Bible in some sense, right? So so it just kind of oozes out of him. Now, therefore, everything that Jesus is going to teach in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew and indeed in the rest of his teachings does not contradict the Old Testament but actually harmonizes perfectly with it. That's what Jesus is trying to get across. And so therefore he says... Do not think I came to abolish, to do away with, to set aside the scriptures. I didn't come to do any of that. I came to fulfill them. Fulfill them. Now, what does that mean? That Jesus came to fulfill the scriptures? Well, think about the way that we use the word fulfill in our modern language. We, what, what does fulfill mean for us? When you fulfill an obligation, when you fulfill your vows, Uh, I'm pretty sure all those Amazon warehouses are called fulfillment centers, right? And you're hoping that they fulfill your order and deliver all the boxes to your front door during this Advent season, also known as Christmas purchase craziness, right? So that's what it means. It means to complete or to satisfy. We were looking at this passage in my community group this week, and and I told them, if you just take the word fulfill and you kind of cut it in half, And then take those two words, full and fill, and reverse them. What do you have? To fill full. To fill up, to fill full. That's what Jesus is saying. I did not come to do away with the scripture. I came to fill it full. What does that mean? How did Jesus come to fulfill or to fill full the scriptures? In a number of ways. I don't have time to get into all of them, but I'll I'll give you a couple. A couple. Um, number one, the, the prophecies and the promises. In, in a room this size, I would imagine that there's one or two of you who might be a little bit skeptical about this Jesus thing, who might be a little bit skeptical about whether you can even believe anything the Bible says. And here's, here's my pushback to you. Not pushback, just, just gentle challenge. I would challenge you to take some time in the next couple of weeks and just look at all the promises, all the Old Testament prophecies about the birth of Jesus Christ during this Advent season. Just take a time. Uh, you can Google it and you can find all kinds of websites that will list out for you. Here are all the Old Testament prophecies and promises about, about the coming of the Messiah. And then you juxtapose that with what the scripture teaches about the coming of Jesus. And what you're going to find is fulfillment in minute detail. These Old Testament passages were written hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And then in the coming of Jesus Christ, we see this fulfillment in minute detail to all of the the place, the time, uh, what would happen uh, with his birth. All of those things are fulfilled. They are filled full in Christ. All the prophecies, all the promises. Um, In Matthew's gospel alone, 13 different times, Matthew will say of an event that happened in the life of Jesus, all this took place to fulfill what was said by the prophet so-and-so. All this took place to fulfill what was written in the book of the law. All, All this took place to fulfill the scriptures. Every symbol and shadow in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The entire story of the Exodus, the entire story of the sacrificial system, right? The Passover lamb. I mean, you, you just story after story after story, symbol after symbol, shadow after shadow. The reality is this, that the Hebrew scriptures, the, what we call the Old Testament, is not primarily a book of just history and rules. It's a story. It is a story, and it it is primarily a story of redemption. God creating a people who fail and who need redemption, and that redemption finding its fulfillment in Jesus the Christ. He is the central figure of the entirety of the scriptures. In fact, uh, we'll look at this again in the new, uh, probably, around easter time but um in the in the gospel of luke this is after the death and resurrection of jesus okay uh jesus is walking on this road called the road to emmaus some you might remember this story luke 24 and there's two disciples and he comes across them now jesus has been raised from the dead he's in his glorified body they don't recognize him and he says hey you look kind of sad why are you guys kind of bummed out and they're like what have you been in a cave man uh it's a joke right Jesus in the tomb. Have you been in a cave? Okay, never mind. If you have to explain it, it's not funny. So at least that's what my wife says. Um, they're bummed out because they say, well, haven't you, have you heard? Jesus. We thought he was the one, right? Like he was fulfilling all these promises, but then he died. And then, and then some people say that he's raised from the dead, but we haven't seen him and we don't know what's going on and we're kind of bummed out. And then Jesus In this stunning, brilliant move, and wouldn't you like to be there? When he says, the scripture says that Jesus, starting with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them everything in the scripture concerning himself. So Jesus does a little Bible study with these men, and he starts with the books of Moses, which would be the first five books of your Old Testament, and the prophets, okay, law and prophets. He, he, he basically led them on an Old Testament Bible study and showed them how all of it is about him. That's amazing. It's all about him, all the things concerning himself. So you could say it like this. Jesus is the period at the end of every sentence. He's the exclamation point at the end of every promise. He fills up the Old Testament like water does in a cup, right? The cup is the vessel. The Old Testament is the vessel. Jesus is the water, and, and, uh, and so you have the cup. The cup doesn't do you a lot of good unless it has water in it. But the water, you can't get to the water without the cup, you see? And, and so you need both. But, but the cup brings the water to us and nourishes us. Um, I've said this before, but the Old Testament uh, is uh, some person, well, way more brilliant than me, which doesn't take a lot, um, said this, that the Old Testament is anticipation of the Messiah, That the Gospels are the manifestation of the Messiah. That the book of Acts is the proclamation of the Messiah. That the New Testament letters are the explanation of the Messiah. And then the book of Revelation is the consummation of the Messiah. The second advent when he makes all things new. And unless you see the Bible that way, that from beginning to end, it's all about Jesus and what he has done for you and for me, you'll never quite get it. You'll never quite get it. So we see here the fulfillment that only Jesus can provide. And then secondly, if you guys are still hanging with me, I want you to see in verses 19 and 20, the righteousness that God requires. The righteousness that God requires. Let's look at verses 19 and 20 one more time. Therefore, meaning in light of everything I've just told you, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the righteousness that God requires. Now, Jesus is turning his attention, you see, from his relationship with the scripture, do not think I've come to abolish, but I've come to fulfill, he now turns attention to our relationship with the scripture. And so he says, therefore, just as I did not come to do away with the scriptures, don't you try to diminish them. And unless your righteousness is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Now, that statement alone, for anyone who was sitting on that hillside, would have left them Jaws dropped and speechless. And here's why. You and I, if you've been around church world for, for a while, when we hear the word scribe and Pharisee, we go, ugh, those guys, right? Because we know they're kind of the religious neatniks who don't quite have it right, but they think they do. They're self-righteous and all that. Um, and that's us with the full knowledge of the New Testament reading back into it. But you have to understand that in the day, the scribes and the Pharisees were the most devout, upright, Respected, looked up to members of society. That they were the ones who were getting it all right. You know, that they were the ones, like whatever kind of person or people group you think of, and you're like, man, I want to be like them. That's how everyone felt about their scribes and the Pharisees. And so they were the ones who took very seriously the law of God. There were 613 commands that were, that were discovered in the Old Testament and the scribes and the Pharisees took it upon themselves to, to attempt to follow every one of those commands uh, to a T. And so they were the righteous ones. They, and so for them to hear, if our righteousness must exceed theirs and they're like the best there is, what hope is there for anybody? It reminds me of my friend Kurt. Some of you know Kurt Hanna, who, who uh, I planted Missio Day with. He was our former lead pastor, and uh, when he was, um, his girlfriend had given him a Bible to read before he was a Christian. And so he's reading through the Gospels, and he comes across this verse: "Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of God." And so he thought, "Well, these scribes and Pharisees must be the, the good guys. Let me see what they're doing, and I'll do that." <laughs> he didn't know any better right like oh i have to exceed their righteousness well let's see what bar they set and i'll try to do better than that until he realized that that was a fool's errand now here's the brilliance and the slyness of jesus as he's instructing his disciples remember they're his primary audience as he's instructing his disciples he's going to flip the script on the scribes and the pharisees who are sort of observing in the background See, out of those 613 commands, there were 365 don'ts, one for every day of the week, isn't that convenient, Uh, and 248 do's. And the scribes and the Pharisees had taken it upon themselves to sort of weigh all of these different commands. And so they said there's some commands, there's some laws that are weightier matters, and there are some that are lighter matters. So to to, to put it in modern day equivalency, it would be like the difference for you and me between something like speeding and something like stealing. Now, they're both laws, right? There are laws prohibiting both of them. Um, But most of us, if we're honest, we could talk about honesty too. That's another one. Uh, Most of us, if we're honest, would say, personally, we probably consider speeding a lighter matter of the law right? We're not religious about staying right at or under the speed limit. But then most of us would say that stealing is a weightier matter of the law. Like that's a bigger deal, right? So this is what they did. They they had some laws that were lighter matters, some that were weightier. And Jesus says in the hearing of all, if you relax even one of the lighter matters of the law, you're not making it. You'll be least in the kingdom which some would take as him saying you don't even get into the kingdom. Now, James, the brother of Jesus, will go on later to say, if you fail at even one of the commands, you fail in them all. Okay, but but in the hearing of these listeners right now, they're going, okay, wait, if we relax even one of the lighter commands, we're not getting in? How do you do that? How do you relax a command? by redefining the standard to make it easier to keep. Uh, this, this picture came to me this morning and I didn't have time to set it up. I was gonna get a piece of rope and, and two, two people to help me. It's imagine it, okay? Imagine, nothing under my sleeve, imagine. I got a rope right here, okay? And you got it pulled tight, okay? So there's a line, there's a standard, okay? And we hold it like this, we go, okay, get over get over the line. You gotta, you gotta get over it. Well, it's this high. Okay, but what happens if the two people holding it sort of pull in a little bit? It relaxes and it droops, and then you can step over it. That's what's happening. People are relaxing the commands of God, reinterpreting them, lowering that standard in order for them to cross over. Does that make sense? Okay, That's what Jesus is saying would not get you into the kingdom. Now, when Jesus, if you read the Gospels, here's what you'll find. When Jesus refers to the scriptures, he will say, as it is written. Here in verses 21 and 27 and 31 and other, and as he goes through these, these uh, six antitheses, he says, you've heard it said, but I say. So here's what's happening. Jesus is not pitting his teaching against the teaching of the scripture. He's not saying, it is written, but I say. He's saying, you've heard it said, but I say. Which means what Jesus is doing is not pitting his teaching against the teaching of the scripture. He's pitting his teaching, which is the teaching of the scripture, against the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Their interpretation of the law. Because the religious leaders of this time, they, they, thought that if they kept the letter of the law, they were keeping the law. Regardless of the spirit of the law. If I keep the letter, I'm keeping the law. And you see this even today. When I was in Israel, uh, on a Saturday, the elevators are programmed to automatically stop at every floor. You know why? Because if you push the button on the elevator, that's work and you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. So it just stops at every floor so you can still get to the floor without using the stairs. I also heard about Uh, there's a law about crossing water. Like, you can't travel but a certain distance, because that would be work, unless you're crossing water. So there are many who will put a bottle of water under the seat of their car (laughs) so that they're always crossing water. So they would say, well, technically, I'm obeying the law. Okay, unless you're an engineer. Anytime you use the word technically, you're probably in danger, right? (laughs) And our kids are the best at this or the worst, whichever one you want to. You, I mean, we, this is the silly example, but like, we've all caught our kids probably like jumping on the furniture and we're like, hey, don't jump on the couch. And then you come back later and they're jumping again and you said, didn't I tell you not to jump on the couch? And they go, well, I'm jumping off the couch. <laughs> and every single one of us has an inner defense attorney who's, who's reading. The laws of God, the commands of God, you know, we've got our little highlighter and our fine tip marker, and we're going, aha, see, here's a loophole. If I do this, technically, I'm not breaking it. We all do this. But what Jesus is doing is he is taking the blade of the law, and he's, in a sense, sharpening that blade to help us see that God's standard is so much higher than we even thought it was, which is why he'll go on, if you look at verse 21. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Uh Uh-oh. Right? So the Pharisees and scribes would say, well, I haven't murdered anyone, so I've kept the letter of the law. And he goes, yeah, but have you ever hated anybody? Have you ever wished ill will to someone? See, there's a negative and a positive way to interpret the commandment. There's a do not do this, and there's, an, there's also the positive side, which is you are to love God and love image bearers of God so much that there's not an ounce of ill will towards any other image bearer of God in your heart. Whew. Okay, he'll go on in um, verse 27. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh oh, times two. By the way, this is a day when everyone wore long flowing tunics. There were no such thing as yoga pants. So the reality of Jesus calling people out on their sin isn't a matter of what the other people were wearing, because it's a matter of the heart. And Jesus says, Look, you can can check the box and say, Well, I've never physically committed adultery with someone else, or you can look into your heart and go, Have I ever used another image bearer of God for my own pleasure? If so, check, I am wrong. I have failed. It's about loving God and loving image bearers of God so much that those thoughts of using others for your own pleasure don't even occur to you. You see the standard? You see how weighty all of the law is? Okay, so when, when Jesus is asked in Matthew 22 to give a summary of the entire law, and the better the rabbi, uh, that they, they could summarize the entire law in as few laws as possible. Jesus says, here's the summary. Here's how you wrap the whole thing up. All 613 commands can be summed up like this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we go, awesome, I can do that, but you can't. And neither can I, by the way. And here's the thing, we don't want to admit that we are absolute train wrecks and failures at loving God with every bit of ourselves and loving our neighbors the way that we would love ourselves. And so we try to reinterpret, right? And redefine what God means by those things in order to make it feel like we've done it. And all of that is an attempt at establishing our own righteousness. We're going to talk more about that next week. I will just remind you that the Bible says that our attempt at righteousness, apart from Christ, um, is, is like presenting filthy menstrual rags before God and going, aren't you pleased with that? Right because righteousness is not a matter of external conformity to rules and regulations and laws. Righteousness must come from the heart. And in the Old Testament, what we see is this story of God giving his people instructions and commands and laws and them failing. Those particular commands. I mean, think about the 10. He gives the 10 commandments. And, right at his, and one of them is don't make idols. And literally right after that, what happens? The people of God make a golden calf. And Moses comes, he's like on the way back down from the mountain with the tablets. They're fresh. And he's, he is so perplexed that they're breaking the command that's written. He drops them and breaks the tablets and they gotta get new ones made. <laughs> laws, failure, laws, failure, laws, failures. That's the whole story of the Old Testament. You know why? Because at the end, God is going through the prophets Hey, it's pretty clear by now, no matter how many laws I give you, you're gonna fail at them because it's not a matter of external conformity, it's a matter of the heart and your hearts are hard. You need new hearts and so through the prophets, God promises that there's gonna come a day when he is going to reach in and break down the stony places of our hearts and make them hearts of flesh that he's gonna write his laws on our hearts and renew us and give us the ability to then follow him and obey him. An Advent is the celebration that God's promises find their fulfillment. They find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. As one of these hymns we sing sometimes says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Jesus fulfilled the law and prophets, but he also fulfilled every righteous requirement of the law because he knew we would fail. And then Jesus died in our place for our Sin, he died in our place to fulfill the penalty for all of our law-breaking. And then he rose from the dead on the third day so that any who would trust in him, who would receive with the empty hands of faith the finished work of Jesus for them would have that new heart and have the law written on their heart. I have one quote. It's a long one, but I want you to hear it because it's so good from John John Calvin. Listen to what he says. He says, it follows that every good thing we could think or desire is to be found in the same Jesus Christ alone. For he was sold to buy us back. Captive to deliver us. Condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing. A sin offering for our righteousness. Marred that we might be made fair, he died for our life so that by him fury is made gentle. Wrath is appeased, darkness turned into light, fear reassured, despisal despised, debt canceled, labor lightened, sadness made merry, misfortune made fortunate. Difficulty easy, disorder ordered, division united, rebellion subjected, intimidation intimidated, ambush uncovered, assaults assailed, forces forced back, combat combated, war warred against, vengeance avenged, torment tormented, damnation damned, the abyss sunk into the abyss, hell transfixed, death dead, mortality made immortal. In short, mercy has swallowed up all misery and goodness, all misfortune." Wow. Okay, so if Jesus would do all of that for you, if Jesus would do all of that for you and for me, what should our response to him be? It can only be trust him, surrender to him, love him, obey him, find out what pleases him, and do it. And we do that by the spirit and through the scripture. Because anyone who has received with the with the empty hands of faith the finished work of Jesus is indwelt by the spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is a seal of our salvation, of our inheritance. And so we are empowered by the spirit to then know what the scripture says and to do what he says. We don't disregard his standards, we don't lower his standards. We trust the spirit to empower us to be not just hearers of his word, but doers thereof. And here's the beauty. The scripture, the New Testament in particular, will over and over and over again say to us, all the law and prophets is summed up in this, love God and love your neighbor. In fact, Paul later in in Romans 13 will say, the one who loves fulfills the law. See, Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. And when we come to him, we are not saddled with more rules. We are freed to follow him and, and to, by faith and by the power of the spirit and through his word, to fulfill those two commands, love God and love your neighbor. And, and it's the best way to live, folks. It's absolutely the best way to live. Okay, so i got a couple questions we're gonna throw up on the screen for you really quickly before we move into our time of response. And here they go. First one's this. How does Jesus' fulfillment of the law and prophets, or the scriptures, in other words, shape how I read them? So here's what I mean by that. When you, when you read the scriptures... Are you looking for things to do? Are you looking for boxes to check? Uh, do you read the scripture as if it's all about you? You know, some people would say the old adage, you know, the, the Bible's the road map to life. And I always point out, like, there are maps in here, but I don't think that's what God meant. Um, or do we read the Bible seeing Jesus as it were on every page? Fulfilling every promise and, and every prophecy. And when we read what God has done, what only God can do through Jesus for us, that we are filled with encouragement and joy and we're humbled by all that God would do. That when we, when we read the Bible, we're just amazed at how, how awesome God is and, and how all of this points to the glory of Christ And we're filled with gratitude and a desire to follow him even more fervently because of how we see Jesus in those scriptures. So that's the first question. Second question is this. How does Jesus' fulfillment of righteousness comfort me when I fail to keep God's commands? And FYI, you're gonna fail God's commands. Probably all of us failed at least one of them before we even got here this morning, (laughs) So when we fail, when we know what God wants us to do and we fail, do we, are we filled with shame? Do we beat ourselves up? I heard someone say one time, and I think it's true, the measure of maturity in our faith is not so much that we fail less, although that's a hope, right? It's that when we fail, we more quickly run back to him. We don't run from him. We don't, we don't keep our distance until we kind of clean ourselves up so we can come back. No, we run right to him. And we trust that that through, and we talked about this a little bit the other week, uh, that through the lens of Christ, when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. He sees you as holy and blameless and above reproach before him because of what Jesus did. So that it's the kindness of God that leads us back to repentance, to quickly running back to him to get more of his grace and more of his grace, which is unending for us. Okay, so, so this, is how, this is how Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets matters for you. This is, this is why it matters so deeply. So we're going to leave those up. You can take a picture of the screen if you want to, or write them down. Um, but I would just ask you to take some time either this morning or, or later on to really contemplate how you would respond to those two questions. Um, I'm going to pray for you. We're going to have a moment of silence and uh, just reflect quietly on what the Lord might have spoken to you this morning. You can pray, you can sit there. Um, There'll be a little bit of instrumental music and then we'll open the tables for communion. Uh, Communion is a commemoration, um, much like Advent, of what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do. Because on the night he was betrayed, Jesus had a meal with his disciples and in it he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper and he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. As often as you eat this bread, remember me. This is in remembrance of what I've done for you. He was broken to make us whole. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, his blood was spilled to cleanse us from sin and unrighteousness and he said, drink this cup in remembrance of me. But he also promises that there's a day coming when we're gonna feast, we're gonna feast in the house of Zion with our great king and savior. He, he is preparing this banquet for us. And, and we will get to feast with him in eternity and be filled with joy. And so as we come to these tables and we take this bread and this cup, we are looking back to what Jesus has done and looking forward to that glorious day when we will be gathered with him. And so we come in faith, we come in repentance, we come with joy. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then don't come please, this is not for you. But if you are and you desire uh, this this blessing uh, of a remembrance of the gospel, then you come to these tables. We'll start at the back rows, make our way forward. Um, and then the band will lead us in a few more songs. I've uh, got a couple of quick announcements for you and we will get on with our day. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time together in your word. Thank you for all that this Advent season means. And I pray that something that has been said today um, in regards to you fulfilling the law and the prophets, Jesus, um, would be meaningful to these brothers and sisters. I thank you for their patience and their listening ears. And Holy Spirit, would you help us to apply, as only you can, uh, the truths that we've heard so that we might be doers and not just hearers, but trusting, trusting that our effort does not gain us righteousness. Our effort comes from the righteousness that has already been given to us through Jesus Christ. We ask that you would be honored and glorified now as we respond to you um, in communion in giving uh, and in worship through song. And we ask all this in the beautiful name of Christ and by the power of your spirit, we pray, amen. Let's be still and quiet for just a minute. When I get up, the tables will be open.